The ancient Chinese believed that the heart was the center of human cognition, and therefore the heart and the mind are one. Wellness Continuing offers spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. At wellnesscontinuing.com, you'll find meditation music with binaural beats, a podcast all about consciousness in the afterlife, blog posts, and a new series called Dreamtime with Catherine Clairvoyant and much more. Sign up for the Wellness Continuing newsletter and stay updated about new offerings and resources. Visit wellnesscontinuing.com. Wellness Continuing. Elevate your heart-mind. Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Brooke Grove is a polytrauma survivor, near-death experiencer, and multidisciplinary integrative healer in co-creation with spirit. A former psychotherapist, Brooke has advanced degrees in clinical psychology, marital and family therapy, and clinical art therapy, enhanced by numerous postgraduate certifications, including shamanic energy medicine, eco-psychology, quantum fieldwork, somatic experiencing, and transpersonal neuroscience. Brooke has been featured on many podcasts, YouTube interviews, and documentaries. Additionally, she speaks frequently at the yearly International Association of Near-Death Studies conferences. Brooke is currently writing her first book. She maintains a private international healing practice offering immersive remote services wherein her goal is to explore, transmute, and empower the evolution in human consciousness through gratitude, service, and light. Here's my conversation with Brooke about her near-death experience and the profound lessons learned. Welcome, Brooke. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So near-death experiences, very popular topic, um, bittersweet, I would say, because mm-hmm. a lot of the times they're very traumatic. And then at the same time, there's profundity in those experiences. And some of the people that I've spoken to who've had them have said that they wouldn't change a thing. Has this been your experience? If you'd asked me when I first came back, that would not be my reply. I would most definitely have wanted to change some things because I was having a really hard time being back here. Yet that was more the integration period. The experience itself, then and now, no, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, that's I, I hear that often. Now, why don't we start uh, by having you share Uh, the near-death experience that you had? Okay. Well, in 2010, I had been suffering from complex autoimmunity for approximately seven years that we were cognizant of. And unfortunately, I was misdiagnosed. This is very common with autoimmune diseases. So I was kind of passed from doctor to doctor. And the testing is not the highest and best. And so often they would have an idea of what was going on. They knew it was an inflammatory response, but they couldn't quite pinpoint it. Mm 
So at this point, I flew back east to Hopkins, which was the leading autoimmune research center at that time. And I went there with the goal of really figuring this out. Well, lo and behold, right before I go in there to be seen, I have a very significant flare up. And I call my doctors on the West Coast because I haven't yet been seen and I don't know what to do. And I was at that time seeing a rheumatologist, pain management, a kidney doctor, and all of them concurred that I needed to take the medication as they prescribed it and just hold out for Hopkins. So that's exactly what I had done. And when I did that, what wasn't understood by anyone, including myself, was that my liver was already failing. And so the medications that I took per their direction actually shut down my liver. And when the liver went, it took the compromised kidneys and lungs with it, therein resulting in an immediate traumatic brain injury, which resulted in an immediate coma. So within a few hours of taking the medication, it, it put me into a deep sleep. And then I was kind of in and out of it. My NDE doesn't begin until after I was helicoptered to Hopkins and in ICU. And at that point, I recall my consciousness leaving the body. And of course, I didn't know that's what was happening to me, yet I saw myself from above myself as I was floating through ICU. And as I've described many times, it was so surreal, it felt like a dream. So I was looking down at the body. I saw all these people working on me and they're in like full on hazmat suits. And we're used to seeing that now. But back then, that was very shocking to my consciousness. So I'm observing it. And it to me, uh, as a child of the 90s, it looked like an X-Files episode. And this is how cute our brains are because our consciousness is separated from the brain. It was literally saying, oh, I'm just dreaming of the X-Files. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, wait, that's my body. You know? And so there became this like fascination of what's going on for this moment. And then as that seemed like it lasted a while, and yet at the same time, I was instantaneously catapulted from caring about what's going on in this very earthly, you know, human experience to this ineffable cosmic realm. And it really did, to me, appear like you know, the most beautiful NASA photograph. And it was just beautiful portals of light with blackness filling it, but no complete darkness, just voids here and there. And then just light on top of light at different speeds and different intensities. But the most beautiful colors, I still to this day have never seen a color like this in this incarnation. So I was in this space. And as soon as I got there, everything else that had just happened just faded away. And I was just held. And the feeling of being held in that space by the light was so, there are no words, it was so moving and so healing in a sense that my higher self, my oversoul, my being had never really felt that held or that seen or that validated in this incarnation. And suddenly there, 
I was part of it. It was part of me. There was no need for words. Everything was communicated intuitively. And at the same time, there were arrivals of certain types of light that were so familiar to me. And it was as if I was coming home for the very first time. I knew these lights and they had known me. And although it wasn't communicated in human language whatsoever, everything came through very fast in a quantum light type of way. There was a knowing that these lights had always been with me. And I was a highly intuitive child. I had always shared with my family that I had seen angelics, that I felt spirits, and all these things had been shamed and indoctrinated out of me. And in this space, there was this knowing that that was all real. That was more real than what I had seen leaving in ICU. That was more real than all of the pain and joy I had known in my incarnation. And it was just so beautiful. So I spent a long time just being with those lights and feeling the sweetness and the nectar of being held. And at the same time, there was other lights that were calling to me, or were, excuse me, other lights that were calling to me. And one, of course, was the magnificent source light. Yet my experience is in a comatose state. Okay, so I'm in this space for just over three days. Now, a lot of times when you hear about NDEs, they're gone for 20 minutes, an hour, sometimes, uh, you know, a little bit longer. I was held in the space for quite a long time. On the other side, there is no time. And so to me, it's always very challenging to tell this story insofar as it seems like it happens very fast. Yet for my soul, it was the most expansive, long experience you can imagine. And so each transition I'm describing, it to me, it felt like it had taken years to get from the angelics to glimpsing and tasting the essence of the source light and then feeling at the same time this pull to it and this pull to something else. And that's really where spirit gave me a lot of the downloads and information. Again, the light communicates through telepathy or inner knowing. There are no words. So again, that makes it quite difficult to translate when you tell these stories. <laughs> However, there was a great deal of information shared. And in human terms, the crust of it would be, you can go to that light or you can return to the human, the body, and all they're okay. There's no right or wrong. Yet at the same time, there was an awareness made known to me that my oversoul had a purpose. It had a mission. It had chosen to come to earth for a reason. And that time was not necessarily over. And if I chose to return to the light, to source, that was okay. Yet my oversoul would ultimately come back. And to even my oversoul, which again is completely separate from my body, but has some awareness of what has occurred on some fundamental core level, that was um, as peaceful as that state was, it was still disconcerting to my soul then. It was like, no, 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 I've already done all that work. Why would I really want to come back and repeat it? Can you just define oversoul versus soul versus consciousness? Most definitely. The soul, for my understanding, is what's with us now. Okay, so we are able to embody and be aware of what 
you know, elates or brings our soul joy here and now. The oversoul would be more like what is in your eighth chakra above your actual earthly body. This is really more the seat of the soul. It's where all souls from every incarnation you've ever experienced, whether it's on this earth walk or in another realm, that's where that lives. And so it really has our divine blueprint. It's more connected to the higher etheric chakras and they're in source. So it has more of an awareness than what most persons would think of with their human soul and the trajectory that they're aware of, even if it's only in glimmers. This is even higher than that, more expansive. And then consciousness itself, you know, there's so many definitions of that, but I do feel that they are a byproduct of both. The oversoul is communicating with the soul, but how much information is getting through is dependent on how open and aware the person is. And then consciousness, I believe, is a reflection of that. That's an amazing answer. Thank you. Um, so you were saying then that your oversoul, your soul, you were having trouble integrating this experience and wondering what direction to go to. Do you want to continue from that point? Thank you. Yes, I really felt I wanted to return to the light. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more welcoming. You know, it was said to me by the angelics that, you know, I, I believe because we tend to get enchanted by it when we're in this space, they reminded me as they do so many others in near death experiences that we are fractals of source, that it was not separate from me. So I would be welcomed into it whenever I wanted to be or was ready or my mission was complete, yet I did not have to go now. It was always there waiting. And if I chose to go back, it would come with me too at a lesser capacity, yet it would come. And so the more that I began to realize that and really you're not in your body and yet you do have some sort of awareness when you're in this in-between state of your human existence. And so knowing that I could potentially bring that light back in a way that I hadn't known it in this incarnation started to fuel me into more of a curiosity about what these other lights in the space were. I was aware, as I mentioned, that some were my guardians and my angelics and things like that. And again, to me, everything appeared as energy, colors, hues of light with different pulsating signatures. I didn't see form, I didn't see persons, I didn't see beloveds in that way. And yet there were these two very enchanting lights that kept kind of flickering off in the distance. And they made me more curious about returning to the body than anything else, which I had no direct knowing of who they were. I asked the angelics, what are those lights? And they said, explore them, you know, in their light way. And so I went there and I remember being like, wow, these are just really beautiful lights. Yet they didn't have that dynamic energy that the cosmic or angelic lights had and nothing of the level of source. Yet they were speaking to me in this very beautiful way. And I was enchanted and I wanted to understand their soul song. And so I began to just resonate with them very, very deeply. And the more that I resonated with these two beautiful lights, and it gives me angel chills just talking about it, I knew I wanted to go back to the body. 
And so I then really turned to the angelics and said, well, how do I get back? I'm in this huge, beautiful space and, and you're moving so fast and the light's moving so fast. And I couldn't understand how do I get back? There's no really direction here. And they said, look for the light unlike any other. And so I'm, you know, really in my own orb of light searching for this other light. And at that point, this very uncomfortable, very dramatic, very human artificial light shines through. And I just looked, well, my energy field looks at it and I'm suddenly catapulted back into the human. And the first thing that happened is as my left eye opened, there was a flashlight in ICU being shown in it. And it was that awful, awful light. And to this day, I am extraordinarily sensitive to all forms of artificial light. Wow. That uh, I had one experience with light, uh, two of them within the same week, um, just as I was attempting to fall asleep, but I was still awake. And um, with my eyes closed, I noticed a light slowly getting brighter and brighter. So, so bright. And of course, I logically thought, well, I must have left the light on, although I was in the country and there's not even a street light on. So when I opened my eyes, it was pitch dark. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I just saw the brightest light of my life. But my point is that it didn't hurt my eyes, which I found very interesting. And I wondered mm -hmm. what that was all about. It was during my experiences of with non-local consciousness and things were being shown to me. So I was still learning. But mm -hmm. that was an observation I made is that how can that light be so bright and not mm -hmm. hurt my eyes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the really big difference between the eternal and the ethereal lights is that they, they shone far brighter, but there wasn't, there was something about it that was still soft, depend, despite the intensity, it was soft, whereas the human was very harsh and very, you know, yeah. discombobulating. I, I understand exactly what you mean. For sure. Um, so you woke up in ICU and then what was your first thought or reaction? At first it was before I realized I couldn't move because it, it took a moment. I was just happy to seize things for a moment. And I, I, my cognition came immediately back in and the, the brain that had been trained as an academic and more science oriented suddenly is like, oh, that was a dream. What a weird dream, you know, <laughs> initially. And then as my eyes started to focus and I started to realize I can't move, which was the first thing that hit me because I was strapped down to a bed. I had a pick line in my brain. I had been declared um, probably brain dead. Uh, there was very slim chance I was had to wake up. They'd already read me my rights and that sort of thing. And so they put this pick line in and to do so, they had to strap me to the bed. On top of that, I'm intubated because my lungs have failed. So I can't speak. The only thing I could move was that left eye. And so I realized I could only move my left eye. I can't move my body. So panic starts to take over. And then I notice I can't really see, like everything was fuzzy. And so I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And, and instantaneously, I, I was clear enough to understand my contacts aren't in. So everything's fuzzy. But what I immediately started to notice was on top of that fuzziness was some other layer. And I'm like, curious, what is this that I'm seeing? And I'm just trying to focus on things since I'm nearly legally blind. And as I'm trying to focus, I'm like, there's something moving 
like constantly, there's something moving. And so again, the mind couldn't make sense of that. So I instantaneously just tried to communicate and get someone's attention. And unfortunately, because of the amount of brain trauma and their belief that I would not wake up, I was not able to get anyone's attention. I couldn't speak, I couldn't move, I only had the eye. So at that point, the brain actually did assist me in its momentary panic, knowing that I could see the vitals chart and my vitals were calm and I was scared. So having been trained as a psychologist, I knew that if I allowed my vitals to just escalate, somebody was going to notice. And so I allowed the panic to come through. And sure enough, my vitals spiked. And when the nurse came, I just rapidly started moving my left eye as much as possible, at which point she came up and said, I think she's awake. And I was like, you know, with my eye, just like moving it as fast as I can. And she said to me, do you understand me? Because again, the brain damage that they anticipated was that I would come back in a vegetative state if I woke up. And my family had already been prepared for this. No one expected me to wake up with full cognition if I woke up at all. And so I immediately blinked more slowly so that she knew it wasn't a muscle reaction. And so she said to me, you know, one for yes, two for no. And we started communicating through my left eye through blinking. And once I got glasses and was able to see, I instantaneously realized that my vision had been dramatically altered by this. And at the time I wasn't sure of what I was seeing 110%, yet I had a working knowledge. I was familiar with the chakra system and, you know, transpersonal psychology. And I was like, I think I might be seeing the energetic field or the quantum field. I don't know how this is possible. And I was terrified of it. And again, having been trained as a clinician, I did not want to be pathologized. So I just began noting to myself what I was seeing. And as doctors would come in and they would be in shock that I was awake or they would be still trying to put the pieces together as what happened, because again, this was not my treatment team that was now treating me. And I had no recollection of anything other than taking the medication. At this point, I start realizing that as the doctors speak to me, I'm noticing things on them. Like someone's lecturing me about, you know, my asthma or my lungs. And at the same time, I can see that they smoke and like see things in their field. And I'm like, what is going on? Or I would just feel something and be like, oh, they're lying to me. But it was like, I knew, you know, I just knew. And so little by little, I start realizing something has profoundly shifted here. This was not a dream. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, the NDE after effects, as they call it. Mm -hmm. Yes. So those were quite significant. Absolutely. From the get -go. Yeah. Wow. So let's go back for a second. Did you ever find out who or what those two lights were? Those light beings that were so curious? It took many years <laughs> for me to meet them on this side. Yet I did when uh, the damage that I had incurred during coma, I had been told I would never have children due to the extensive nature of the organ damage. Yet I ended up getting pregnant in 2013. And when I had my son, uh, I instantaneously noticed when he came out that he had the same magnificent indigo color around his crown 
that I had melt, met, excuse me, met, it makes my heart melt. Yeah. <laughs> so, the slip. I had met on the other side. And that same beautiful gift from spirit arrived in 2017 when I met my youngest and he was born and he had the most magnificent green aura, which was exact color I had met on that side for him. And that's so significant because when they incarnated three years after my coma, seven years after my coma, that was in the seven years post reintegration, which statistically for near death experiencers, and I am textbook in this way, is the most difficult period. And I have spoke openly about this. I am not ashamed of it. I, like so many other experiencers, because of the profound nature of my after effects, I struggled with being back here. I struggled with suicidality. My eldest really saved me from that. He came in, he was born an intuitive. He's been sharing his gifts since before he was three. He really opened me up to what a joy this could be and how we can be of service. So in so many ways, I believe he was a teacher guide waiting for me on that side and came through to be with me through this experience. He spoke with me at a near-death conference last year about it. He's just phenomenal. And then with my eldest, we were going through another major shift just in our family dynamic that was really triggering to my human because of my trauma history. And he came in at that time. And he, on the other hand, is this beautiful earth seed. And so my eldest has a Sanskrit name, which is literally of the heavens. And then my youngest by intuition, I gave him a Viking name, which is of the earth. And so I always say they really helped me bridge heaven and earth and be here and be embodied and use my gifts. And yet at the same time, really love and honor and share the human experience too. I'm blown away with emotion right now. <laughs> like I'm tearing up. <laughs> that is just stunning. Um, you know, and our children, I do believe many of them, if not all of them are our teachers. I mean, depending on the situations. Um, yeah, there's so much to be learned and uh, we need to listen to our kids in those times, especially. Um, obviously we need to guide them <laughs> and teach them how to grow and, and be and develop into adults. But um they all carry that intuition on some level. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting thing that you just mentioned. And, and thank you for, you know, d dispelling any kind of shame. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people have a hard time being here, period, just being incarnated because it's, it's a mm -hmm. tough it's a tough existence, a tough incarnation being here on Earth. Um, mm -hmm. So after seeing the contrast and, and remembering, because we all have that programmed forgetting when we are incarnated um, as mm -hmm. per our soul contract to my understanding. So then when you kind of go back and you're like, oh yeah, this is what I'm missing. Um, I can appreciate that it's even more profound uh, and, and to see the contrast of reminding us how hard it is here. Mm -hmm. And then the trauma of the, incident, the accident that you had, um, the medical issue. Um, yeah, that's just a lot. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you manage to integrate it in those first seven years? Because obviously you had some other extenuating circumstances, life circumstances, you know, that mm -hmm. just makes recovery that much harder. How did you integrate it? It was challenging. Uh, in the beginning, I really 
had kind of a reaction formation to use psychology's vernacular against it. I There was a period where I was just in awe and in gratitude, of course, in the hospital, and I used it to heal. And I was deeply moved by that. Yet again, my training really stigmatized it to me. I knew that if I went to a therapist or a psychologist or even, you know, my academic team, because at the time I was a PhD candidate, I would be pathologized and that it would either at best be called schizoaffective, excuse me, at worst schizophrenic or psychotic. And so I really struggled because I wanted to stay in that identity that I was in, that I had worked so hard for. And so for the first three years, and this is why my eldest incarnation was such a gift, because I was defending my dissertation and I was so married to that version of who I had been, that I was unwilling to let it go, despite the fact that it was now costing me everything, because by not being able to embody and share my gifts, it would constantly cause periods where my health would flare up again. I had gone into spontaneous remission and fully healed. And then I would go back to trying to have the earth walk be the way it had been before, and I'd get sick. And then my son, I end up getting pregnant with him just when I'm about to defend my dissertation. And I was so upset because it was like, no, I've, you know, I've worked so hard to get back here. And now this is happening and I'm going to have to give this up again. But it ended up being that blessing, that redirection from spirit. of This isn't aligned for you anymore. And so I chose to take his pregnancy and really start to look at like, well, what do I do with this? How do I use it? And ironically, before I even knew I had, no, I had just found out I was pregnant with him. I went to my first IANS, which is the International Association of Near-Death Studies conference in uh, Scottsdale that year. And when I was there, I realized my gifts go through the roof when I'm around other intuitives. And yet I have no training but when I would have conversations and stuff with people, I was like, this is fun, you know? And a lot of them that we were first connecting that year, they picked up some of them. They asked if I wanted messages from spirit and like one or two, I said, yes. And one person was like, that boy that you're carrying is just as gifted as you, if not more. And I was like, yeah, I got that. I got that yeah, the feeling already. And they were like, you guys are going to have a very special bond and it's going to catapult the work you do in this community. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But again, wasn't totally willing to walk away from everything. So I left my program at that point. I began diving more into what some would deem the esoteric. I shifted from clinical psychology into transpersonal, but it wasn't until I really allowed myself to dissolve. I call it butterfly medicine in shamanic terms. It was that period of saying, okay, I, I can be in the cocoon. And to be in the cocoon, I must first turn into cosmic goo. I must just let everything I thought I was dissolve. And I don't know how long I'll be in this space. Turns out I was in it four years. Yet once I come out, I don't know who or what I'll be, yet I know I'll be a butterfly. And and that was Spirit's message. They, they were very cheesy in a way with me. <laughs> yet there was this sort of like field of dreams mantra to it that if I just let go, and trust, it would all come. 
And I, and I was told from everyone, do not walk away from psychology. Do not walk away from your training. Do not walk away from this, this, and this. You've worked for 13 years just for this one thing. Don't walk away from it. And so there was this like ebb and flow during that cocoon stage. And then one day I was just like, no, I'm done. And I remember being like, okay, I've done all this. I don't know where it's going, but spirit keeps telling me it's going somewhere. I'm just going to start creating things and putting them out there and seeing what happens. And I, I literally remember my mom, as I'm sitting there working on my first version of my current website and my first conference proposal, she was like, people are not going to pay you for this. And I'm like, spirit says if I build it, they will come. <laughs> you know? So, and it's just like really unfolded from that moment, you know, just allowing that doubt to be a vehicle instead of a hindrance to say, okay, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know is freedom because everything I thought I knew was confining me and making me sick. It was suppressing my gifts. It was making me suicidal. The things I know are maladaptive. The thing I've been given is highly adaptive and it has a wisdom beyond my vernacular, beyond my training. It's why I came back and it's what I wasn't connected to anymore and thought I had lost and they gently reminded me of in the cosmic space that I hadn't. So trusting that began to make so much more sense than trusting anything in this realm. And that was the big shift. And that's when, but then I started to realize I also needed to integrate it. And this is, this has been big as far as where I've gone with my work is in other cultures to a much larger scale, there are rights and celebrations and ceremonies to honor major shifts in our trajectory. And unfortunately, in this culture, we've lost a lot of that. And so I began to really, you know, practice shamanic arts and different types of things that allowed me to kind of rebirth myself in a way. And that's when I began to realize so many of these experiencers are coming back and they're doing exactly what I did. They're suppressing it or they're not talking about it or they're waiting years to talk about it. What if instead of, you know, shaming it or sending them to someone that's going to pathologize it, what if I use my training to create a space wherein they'll be held, wherein there will be clinical know-how, where I'll be able to support all the mental and emotional aspects, but then there will also be the spiritual, the energetic, the emotional as well. And I can create ceremonies which actually honor this radical shift, whether it be from a spiritually transformative experience, an NDE, any mystical experience of consciousness that's really radically altered them. And we can create a ceremony that honors that and allows them to begin this reintegration process with someone that's been through it knows how to work with spirit, can help them access their guides and co-collaborate so that they can come into the world, stepping into this new power, allowing that old self to die, but doing it all with love and in service. And that's really what birthed my current practice and, and up-leveled me as far as my reintegration. That's very powerful. Um, it makes me think of this quote that I read. I can't recall who uh, stated it. But it goes something like this, is that a seer or a shaman, if they suppress their gifts, um, they usually come across illness or calamity until they embrace it and move forward on that path that they are supposed to be on. Now, it brings me to the question, though, very in the world question of 
are we not supposed to make plans? Are we not, do we not have control over our futures? Um, I know, I know that we should hold our, pl to, onto our plans very loosely so mm -hmm. we can make them, mm -hmm. but not hold them too tightly. What do you think mm -hmm. about that? I feel that's a good perspective. I, I do feel it's always good to have an anchor point or direction, but not be married to it, not be attached to outcomes. It's our attachment to things that causes us so much pain because we, our mind, our beautiful mind wants to protect us so much. And it thinks it's doing that by running the show and saying it needs to be this, this, and this way. And then when doesn't unfold that way. We're disappointed or we feel things aren't working out. Yet my story has repeatedly taught me that it's every time that I'm divinely redirected or in other person's terms, things don't work out, that I'm actually being up-leveled and guided. So having a, a a, a direction to where you want to go is a beautiful thing, but allowing it to unfold in accordance to divine will. That's a struggle for humans, yet it's also the way that things work with so much more grace and ease. So I think there's a fluidity to it and just allowing for that. Have direction, but know that you're also being held. Know that what you came here to do and what you intend to do, if it's vibration is aligned with your intention and action, you're going to get there. Don't worry so much on the destination. It is true. Enjoy the journey, but do keep that alignment to where you want to go. And then they co-create. I love that. You've talked before about addiction and you talk about Dr. Gabor Matei. And I think there's a lot of great information and wisdom in his work and what you've learned from that. Can you talk about that? Yes, I was very blessed to uh, encounter him through science and non-duality and just have an instantaneous rapport. And I was going to be interviewed for his most recent book. And then it just turned out the pandemic unfolded and a bunch of other stuff. But we sort of became pen pals during that time, which was this beautiful blessing to me because I had really looked up to him when I came back. I had gone through addiction prior to my NDE. I am a polytrauma survivor. And so I had gone through addiction at a very young age, and then it would sporadically come back into my life. And again, that's an issue where there's a lot of shame, you know, a lot of family stories that don't want to take accountability for how it's a systemic disease tend to identify the patient and put shame on them. And the beautiful thing about Gabor's work is that he truly believes that addiction is a trauma response. It's not a brain disease per his understanding. It is a trauma response. And as such, you know, he really looks at the different types of trauma and how do we experience those? And then how do we heal from those so we may heal our addictions? And per his perspective, and I wholeheartedly concur with this, everybody has a form of addiction. It's the level we take it to. He openly talks about his addiction to work in the earlier part of his career and what that cost him with his family. He's doing talks now with his son about the work they've had to do to co-regulate and restore that. So it's very beautiful to speak with someone that was such a pioneer and that path that's been an addiction specialist for decades and is also open to NDEs and spiritually transformative experiences. And, you know, when the pandemic occurred, 
we were having a conference at that time and we had to change all of our titles. And it was at the last second because everything went virtual. And I mean, it completely threw mine into a monkey wrench because it was not aligned with the new direction they were taking it. And so they finally wanted to focus on trauma, which when I started speaking out in the NDE community, trauma was a dirty word. Nobody wanted to talk about it. It was love and light. And if you brought the shadow up, you weren't in the club. Okay. That shifted with the pandemic. And that happened to be when Gabor and I were talking all of the time. And so I sent him a voice memo at like three in the morning one night. I was like, I was so tired. I sent them this title and I put the wisdom of trauma, which anyone who's seen his new um, documentary knows that that's what it's called. But I put it as a byline, okay, like with something else. And it was just a proposal. Well, they went and put it on the flyers and everything. So I call him like, I put the wisdom of trauma and they put it on the flyers. And and he's like, Brooke, I don't own the words. (laughs) It's okay. And so at like three in the morning, we're sending these messages back and forth. He's answering me at three in the morning. God bless him. (laughs) But he's up writing at these hours. So it was just this beautiful thing because he taught me so much about, you know, really owning my story without shame in the public eye and the power of that and being able to talk about it with integrity, being able to know that trauma is now a collective experience. This is not something before, yeah, no one wanted to talk about it, but now we've all been through different variations of it and are continuing to go through different variations of it. It's something that needs to come out of the closet, addiction, trauma, all of it. And the connection to spirituality is profound because the vagus nerve, which he also talks in depth about, is really the portal to transcendence. It's also the portal to complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And as Gabor always says, it's not a disorder. It's a response to an extraordinary situation. It is a very valid and natural response. So beginning to look at trauma in that way, owning it as a collective, that it's part of our narrative, and that all forms of addiction are an automated response to an aversion of pain. And we all on a human level want to avoid our pain, but it's paired beautifully with the work I do now because for me and countless others, the medicine's in the wound. It's not by running from our pain that we heal by any means. It's by diving deep into it and giving it a seat at the table and acknowledging it. And that begins by taking away shame. And so that's absolutely essential to addiction medicine. It's essential to all forms of healing. And it's a beautiful gift that I brought from my brief but beautiful interactions with Gabor. (laughs) He sounds wonderful. Um, Yeah, there's so many layers here. And it's so interesting how all of this integrates. And the one thing that's been missing for a person's healing seems to be that spiritual aspect, Mm -hmm. which in your shamanic studies and and what shamanism offers, um, you know, the soul retrieval and uh, bringing everything together, bringing back the whole being is just vital. And that's what's been missing, especially in our North American society in particular. We're still steeped in materialism. We won't even believe or accept that consciousness is not created by the brain. Mm -hmm. Right? So... Yeah, there's so much healing to be had, especially in the last couple of years. I'm just kind of reflecting at the moment 
how everything has come to the forefront. When people talk about an acceleration, mm -hmm. a push forward, now's the time is what it oh, seems most like. definitely. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was one of the many messages of my NDE when I was scared to return, when I was in that place of unknowing and, you know, contemplating, do I want to go back to more trauma? Because there was that message they actually had, and I've discussed this before, they, they warned me, but in a very loving, light infused way that when I returned, things were going to get harder. And that's really what left me in that like hesitant space for moments or what felt like years <laughs> is that I couldn't fathom coming back to anything more hard than what I had already been through. And I know now they were talking about the suicidality and the many dark nights of the soul that would occur. And then in a way, what's happening now? What they let me know was that when I was ready to embody, and again, it's so hard to put light language into this these terms, and I don't mean light language by the type most are familiar with, but the actual like quantum light. Um, that said, it's hard to uh, translate it. That what they what it felt like and how I've embodied it now is that I would be coming back and I would be coming into my power. That's a better phrasing. I'd be coming into my power at a time that so many other souls that had incarnated to do this very sacred work would be unifying. And that was really the purpose. And, and I understood that too, when I saw the light of my son, over there was that this was a helper. This was, we were all coming together. And so sometimes people hear these messages we've received in our NDEs and they find them grandiose. I don't because it was always about a collective empowerment. It was always about the light returning to bring in a golden age of Christ or Buddha consciousness. And that's what we're at the precipice of now, should we choose to rise up and do the hard and holy work. I'm getting chills as you're saying that as well. It's still a choice. We still have that choice if we want to rise up and, and elevate to that level. Yes. And as I discuss with my son all the time, it is a choice, yet it's also inevitable. Do I see it in my lifetime? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I know that I will see glimmers and I have hope because I actively am working as a catalyst for it. And I know countless others that are. So the more we unify, the more I believe it's going to create that possibility, but everything does exist in the quantum and, and there's multiple timelines that can unfold. So it is all about how does humanity choose to serve itself? Do we unify or do we continue to divisively separate so that it takes longer? There's so many different ways this may unfold, but what everyone needs to remember is that their power magnifies everything around them. So by stepping into it, they make a divine choice. And that's going to shift things dramatically and far quicker than if they cower back in fear and silence and unknowing. It's okay to not know. None of us know, no. Yet you can still have your power. You can still say, I trust you know, in something greater than myself, or I know I am part of something greater than myself. And by embodying that and choosing to be of the light, that, that's, I mean, that, that shifts everything because together, when we bring these fractals of source that we are together, we create God on earth. And that's what we're really here to do. So. Indeed. 
You also do dream analysis, or that was at least the, was that the work you did before, or is that current work? I don't, I do do it right now. It just, everything that I do now depends on the individual that comes in. So if that's what spirit co-creates with me, then it is something I will do. I'd say I do it more now with uh, clients in their homework assignments after they've done ceremony and work with me and then dreams come through and we'll look at it then. Um, But yes, that was when I was studying depth psychology, something that we were very much trained in and looking at the archetypal. How How do dreams help? Just very briefly, how is dreams and dreaming and dream analysis uh, beneficial to healing the soul? We, you know, our whole really emotive and spiritual and energetic understanding is far more archetypal than it is concrete. And so dreams are this beautiful way that what the mind can't process, because again, the mind is always working as a defense system. It's always trying to buffer out things. It's really good at making you be human. It's not so good at helping with the higher chakra understanding and integration of the etheric and the spiritual and the transpersonal. It can be a hindrance to those. But and when I say that, I'm referring more to the lower mind, you know, the very analytical. The higher mind, of course, is very different. And so what the dreams do is they allow this bridge, this anchor point between the lower mind and the higher mind. And when we're in this dream state, it really is a, a fragment of the dream body. And so we're able to go into different brain modes wherein information comes through in these metaphoric or archetypal ways that we can't process in our waking state. So you may wake up from a dream and find that it was, you know, really otherworldly. And yet if you actually sit with it and you look at what are the things I'm struggling with or what was it I couldn't really acknowledge about today or the situation that I'm struggling with, quite often the dreams through these archetypes, which are universal, will tell you these very potent you know, alchemical messages. And by understanding that, you can really shift your reality in the waking, you know, using maybe, you know, I don't know if a snake comes through in your dreams, maybe you're terrified of snakes, yet the snake keeps repeatedly coming through. Well, what's the snake messaging? What's it trying to tell you? And by looking at that and your fear of it, what's that fear trying to say? So again, they just, they have a very beautiful way of saying what you're not looking at, what your defenses are maybe boycotting in your waking consciousness, but they are very holy and divine messengers. So they're a beautiful thing to fathom. And dream journals are probably one of the easiest activities you can do to really help pull that in. You don't need to analyze it. Yes, you can go to someone that can analyze it, However, just recording it and giving it a space, externalizing it, that allows your mental brain and also your somatic body to start to begin to dialogue with it more. And that's when synchronicities begin to unfold in your waking state, because now you're bringing the two together, you're marrying them. And that's what spirit loves. They love seeing that kind of stuff and they respond to it. And so that we tend to get signs, signals, things like that, that you might overlook if you're not paying attention, but the more awake you become to it, or the more they start to unfold, you start to notice this isn't a coincidence. Uh, Tell me about some projects that you're working on. I heard you talk about a book. 
Yes, I love writing. It's one of my great passions. Although uh, with two young children and the, the pandemic, it hasn't exactly been where all my energy can go. That said, I have been working on a memoir for quite a while. And I now understand that a lot of why I've pushed it off was because of this timeline. So much has come through through this experience and my work with persons during this experience. Also, so many of the things that I wanted to put into the book that were taboo, like a few years ago, are suddenly not now taboo. So I am working on a memoir that is really a near-death experience is part of it, yet it's really self-healing from trauma and integrating the spiritual aspects in that to that because I really want it to be a roadmap to others of how they can do it. You don't need a mystical experience or a near-death experience to open to these things. And in fact, it can make it a little harder in some ways, depending on the level. Yet I want it to apply to the collective and have that aspect of knowing. And then it and really do integrate the psychology with the spirituality, everything I've really been through to kind of, you know, connect the dots. But it's been very fun to write and I've been testing little segments on Instagram. So um, yes, I'm just I'm really calling in the publisher I want. I keep getting a lot of feedback that's strictly NDE or strictly psychology and I know spirit. As long as I hold out and hold on to faith, the right publisher will come through. I believe that as well. I'm looking forward to that very much. Thank you. So tell me about your social media. What are what are your social media handles? Where can we find you online? Okay, well, since I'm testing the water on the writing, I have a private Instagram page, which is at Brooke with an E, Grove, G-R-O-V-E, healing, all one word. You can find me there. Since it is private, please send a DM uh, so that I know who you are and uh, honor your request. And because I do keep it consciously small as I am super energy sensitive. And I like to know that I have people that are engaged and on the same vibration and uh, not getting my energy siphoned is a good thing. So that's my Instagram account. And then for YouTube, I have a channel that's brand new in the works that's forthcoming, but there are some videos up there. So if you want, you can check that out. That's at Brook Grove Healing as well, or Brook Grove Healing, I believe is just the channel URL. And then my website is well is www.brookgrovehealing, all one word, if you see the theme there. <laughs> and so you can find me there. I get a lot of Facebook requests, guys, and I'm not using that page anymore. I'm retiring it. So please don't go to that one. But yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. Brooke, you're very powerful energy. And I can really feel how um, like stabilized you are. Like I can tell, I don't even know if I have the words. I, I really feel that you've integrated all of these modalities and your experience and face the shadow. And now you've, ju you've just got this wonderful energy about you and this wonderful mission that I know that you're a hundred percent into, you know, you're, you're ready to fulfill. And I'm so grateful for that. So thank you for that. Thank you for everything you're doing. And I look so forward to more things to come. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here and a joy to share with you all. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Brooke Grove. For more on Brooke, please visit brookegrovehealing.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. 
The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And check out wellnesscontinuing.com for spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart mind. And make sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.